When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis, and happy as always to have you here with me today. So why do we go back on this show over and over again to Chicago? From Leopold and Loeb to Al Capone to John Dillinger to H.H. Holmes, I'd easily wager that the well of true crime stories in Chicago runs deeper than in any other city in the United States. And we've got another great one today from the Windy City one that I'm very excited to share. I'm grateful to have as my guest today author, journalist, and college professor, Dr. Emily LeBeau Lucchese. Her book, Ugly Prey, An Innocent Woman and the Death Sentence that Scandalized Jazz Age Chicago, is a tale of a woman accused of murder in 1920s Chicago. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So where did you first stumble onto this story? Uh, So I was familiar in a way with Sabella's story because she was a bit character in the movie Chicago. And the movie Chicago was based on real-life women who, in the movie, were these glamorous, guilty women who were not one bit sorry for the crimes they committed, and they got away with murder. And in the movie, there's um, a ballerina who is innocent, and uh, she's most famously remembered for self-act tango when she says she's not guilty, and uh, that was based on Sabella Nitti. I didn't quite realize that until I read the book Girls in Murder City by Douglas Perry, and in that book, Perry focuses on Belva and Beulah and the women who inspired Chicago as well as a woman, Maureen Dallas Watkins who reported the trials and ended up writing the play. So after reading that, Tabella was really just kind of a side character. I thought, I want to know more. So I sent away for the 700-page transcript from the uh, Illinois Supreme Court archives, and I began digging in, and I quickly realized this was an innocent woman who had been sentenced to die. Sabella Nitti is the central character in this narrative, She was an Italian immigrant living a pretty primitive existence in the early 1920s, right? Exactly that. She'd come just a few years prior. Her family was from Bari. And her husband had actually come to the U.S. more than a decade prior. And then he sent for Sabella and um, her sons. And life really was not that much better for them in Chicago. They lived on a farm without running water or electricity. And that was very notable because the city, many of us live now in apartments or houses that were already built by that time. And here she was living as though it was centuries prior. So 
Where was the, the farm located? Uh, what kind of crops were being grown? So it, it, they called it a truck garden farm. So it was it was a lot of vegetables that they would sell then on Randolph Street uh, in Chicago, which is now a very popular restaurant district. But at the time, that's where they sold uh, wholesale to uh, restaurants and hotels. So they were located in Stickney, Illinois, which is one of the inner ring suburbs of Chicago. And they were located, Chicagoans who listen to this will now recognize it um, as the water reclamation area. So her farm doesn't exist anymore. um, It's part of the water reclamation. And a reference point would be close to Midway Airport. Gotcha. And, And can you talk about her family as well? She had three sons and two daughters. Is that right? Yeah, so Sabella was probably about 44 years old, um, anywhere between 42 to 44 years old in the early 1920s. And uh, her husband was much older than her, um, which was pretty pretty standard practice at the time. He was at least 20 years older than her. And together they had uh, three boys. The oldest was James, and he was about 24. And then his brother Michael was just a year or two younger. Charlie was 16, and then she had two little girls born in the U.S. who were both under the age of five. And uh, it was a a very difficult existence. The older boys, for the most part, were not home, and Sabella had her two little girls. The 16-year-old came in on occasion, but he had reason to leave the household often because uh, they were quite impoverished. And uh, in addition to not having heat and electricity, uh, they just didn't have the comforts that you would expect in a Chicago home in the 1920s. So, for example, instead of having a regular stovetop, they had one of those wood-burning stoves that would just choke the the small house with smoke. And they also uh, had mattresses that were stuffed with hay. It, It wasn't a very nice life. And in addition to that, um, it was a very violent life. Francesco Nitti, no relation to the gangster, was a very violent man who drank heavily. And at times he fought with both his boys. He also turned violent towards Sabella. Violent in, in what way? This was a, it was a, one example that really matters to the story. It was about three weeks before uh, Francesco Nitti goes missing. He has a huge brawl with his second son, Michael. And what had happened is that Michael came home to the Nitty family farm and asked his, his parents for money because he wanted to get married. And at the time, uh, Italian, uh, Southern Italian American men in Chicago were expected to pay for everything for a wedding. They had to set up an apartment, bring in furniture, pay for the actual wedding, and Michael didn't have the funds. So no woman, her parents are not going to allow her to marry Michael. So he came and he asked for the money. And Francesco Nitti, instead of just saying, no, we don't have it, he slapped his son. Michael, being a young man in his 20s, he wasn't going to accept that type of humiliation. And the two of them got in a nasty fight. And at the end of the fight, Francesco Nitti was completely bruised and uh, several broken ribs and his face was black and blue, and uh, he had to to give up the, the, that fight to Michael, but I'm quite sure there are probably many in uh, Michael's lifetime in which his father was the victor. How long after this fight does it take for Frank Nitty to be reported missing? Is it right after? Yeah, so what happened is right after that fight, Frank Nitty was embarrassed, and he left the family for a few days, and then he came back. And then one night in late July, um, it was a Saturday night, so it was a work night for the family, and it was expected that Francesco would wake up the next morning and take uh, the crops to market. And around uh, 9 p.m., he, he told Sabella to go up to bed, and he said he wanted to step outside and uh, keep an eye on the crops, and he said that he was afraid someone was going to set fire to the crops. Now, who is that someone? I don't know. I think Michael seems pretty suspicious, but Francesco could have had other enemies. 
What we do know is that around 1 or 2 in the morning, Sabella realized he hadn't come to bed, and she immediately reported it. That night, she got out of bed. She got a farmhand to come translate for her, and she walked one mile to uh, the head magistrate of Stigney's house, asked for help. He said it was a police concern. She walked a mile in the opposite direction to the chief of police and said, please help my husband. He's missing, and I think he could have been harmed. Yeah, despite all that, she became the primary suspect. So this happens and nothing comes of it, of course, because he's not dead, right? Well, we don't know. I I don't think, I don't know. I I think he could have walked away. But, you know, and so that's the thing. We we don't know because the body that was found um, was most likely not Francesco Nitti. Um, I should say for any of your listeners who like to maybe eat lunch or something while they listen to your podcast, I should give a, a bit of a warning because uh, the corpse that was found in the, the the catch basin in the sewer was decayed beyond recognition. So it was stripped of skin, hair. Most of the ligaments had stopped holding the bones together. It was wearing clothing. And one very interesting aspect to point out is that it was wearing a jacket. And when Francesco Mini disappeared, the high that day was 79 degrees. So that's in Chicago, not jacket weather. Now, this information, was this something discussed during the trial, or or was it something deduced by you in, in hindsight? This is something I deduced in hindsight. Part of it is that we we I was able to reach out to experts regarding uh, again, sorry to those of you eating a meal, <laughs> how a body decomposes in water. Because that's a completely different ball game. We don't know what was in that water, what sort of chemicals or oils were in there. Um, and so it's hard to say whether that body was there for years or months. But what we do know is that it was decayed beyond recognition and that even when they ID'd it um, and guessed to the age of the body, it w- would have been younger than Francesco Nittin. It also, you know, it, one thing that was really important to to mention is Cook County Deputy Sheriff, who was completely obsessed with Sabella Nitti and completely obsessed with this case, he decided that the body had been beaten with a mallet uh, in the head because there was cracking and an indent. But again, now we know, forensic scientists know, that when a body is submerged in water, the head is going to most likely drop beneath and the blood is going to pool. So the cracking in the skull was most likely a post-mortem cracking. They didn't know this in the 1920s. So I don't know how that body got in there, I don't know how it died, how long it had been dead, but I contend it was not Francesco Nitti uh, based on the fact that he wouldn't have left wearing a jacket. I mean, it's fascinating how you've been able to look at the evidence and come to your own conclusions, conclusions that weren't even being debated during the time that this was a real story. There was no question about... It, who this man was. It, 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 it was, even for 1923 Chicago, the, the case was ridiculous because the night that the body was discovered, this is in May 1923, the body is discovered, and the only way they're able to positively identify the body is his two sons saying that they recognized a gold ring um, on one of the dismembered fingers that they claimed belonged to their father, and then the shoes that he was wearing. They they said they recognized the shoes. The shoes were just standard working man's shoes in Chicago. There was nothing distinct about it. The gold ring, there was no inscription. There was nothing that anybody could have, have used to tie, tie it to Francesco Nitti. Uh, but what's interesting is that Michael, the one son who got in a fight with Francesco, certainly had a motive to not be seen 
as the killer, and his older brother James also had a motive as well. And that is that he had declared his father legally dead and had taken the estate for himself. And a judge threw that out and reordered him to pay everything that he had liquidated from the farm to pay his mother some of $800. So James certainly had an interest in uh, seeing his mother arrested. Who discovered the body, and, and how did police connect the body to the Nitty family? Well, so after Francesco Nitty went missing in July of 1922, the deputy sheriff, Paul Dasso, began sniffing around the Nitty family farm. And Sheriff Dasso, I have to tell you, was the type of lawman who just believed in his own theories. Uh, he really thought that he was kind of a Sherlock Holmes where he could deduce the evidence just by looking at a situation and drawing conclusions. And so um, he did so very often with overwhelming error. And he had come up with this theory in the autumn of 1922 that Sibella Nitti was having an affair with one of her farmhands. Now, keep in mind, nobody had seen this affair happen. Nobody had accused Sibelinity of having an affair. But the reality was he couldn't get a grand jury to indict Sibella. So without that, his next best thing was to pick Sibella and her farmhand up on adultery charges. And at the time in Illinois, there were adultery and fornication laws on the books. And this was not so much because people in Illinois were really concerned about the private business of others, but it was because uh, in the 1800s, when Mormon settlers were moving west, uh, Illinoisans did not want polygamy in the state, and so they came up with this law to keep the, the, the settlers moving, and they did. So this law was still on the books, and Sheriff Jackson had to shop around to four different jurisdictions uh, before someone he knew knew somebody who was willing to press charges. So he actually got uh, my hometown of Oak Park, which is eight miles to the north, to arrest Sabelle and Peter. He got the police to do it. So they did. And she was in jail waiting to go before magistrate in the autumn of, of 1922. And that is when James completely liquidated the estate. Uh, and, and for my research purposes, that was uh, very helpful um, because everything was then documented in probate court. And so that's why I'm able to tell you with such detail how the Nitty family lived is because at one point everything had to be itemized uh, for the probate case against uh, between uh, James and Savella. So the, the magistrate threw out the charges against Sabella Nitti. At that point, it was December of 1922, and she lost everything. She lost the farm. Her husband wasn't around anymore. Um, she, she had a very bleak winter. And in the spring of 1923, she did go ahead and marry the farmhand. And I do contend that they were never more than friends. I think that they both had some strong hardships. And they had found a friendship in each other. But Sabella had said that she never had any relations with him prior to their, their marriage. And I find her to be a very credible um, witness when I, I checked out her information um, from, during her, her court testimony. So it is May 1923 and a road crew in Stickney, right on the border of Stickney and Berwyn, finds the body. Uh, and it's in just a standard street catch basin. We still have the same type in Chicago where you would have the real heavy manhole cover in the middle of the street. And then on the side of the curb, there's a, a small grate that where water can run down during storms. And uh, it would have been very difficult for Sabella or Peter to get this body in. Uh, they would have had to pull off the manhole cover, uh, which was ridiculous and really highly unlikely. So I'm not quite sure how the body got in there or how long it had been in there. But I can tell you it was decayed beyond our ignition. But Dasso had a theory 
and Sabella's two sons were supporting it. And that afternoon, they went before a coroner's jury. They had the body declared as Francesco Nitti. And then uh, Sabella and Peter were arrested that very evening, along with her 16-year-old son. So Sheriff Dasso comes up with this theory of the two of them being lovers and in cahoots before they decide to marry each other. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a, a very smart move on Sabella Nitti's part, if his theory is based on this. <laughs> no, you're right about that. But here's the thing. It's, she's out of options. Her husband's gone. And she's a woman in 1923 who doesn't speak the language. She can't read or write. And she and Peter are actually homeless and staying with another farmhand. And she's told if, if Dasso finds out they're going to arrest you again. So she believes that by marrying Peter, that that she's she's not going to get arrested. This Sheriff Dasso seems like quite a larger-than-life character. You know, he has a really interesting background because he, for a long time, worked as the head of what was almost essentially like a, a, a you know, a, a juvenile hall, right? Um, and it was it was like a boys' prison with mandatory schooling, and he was a terror. Every morning he would line the boys up, and those that were accused of an infraction were allowed to tell Dasso their story. And if he found them guilty, the younger boys he would lock in a dark cell for hours because he found that they were afraid of the dark, so it effectively terrorized them. The older boys were forced to kneel on all fours like an animal and uh, get uh, whipped with a belt in front of all the other inmates. And eventually, the aldermen of Chicago found out and um, were pretty horrified. And after some, some public outrage, Doss was brought into the mayor's office, and there was a closed-door conversation and in the Chicago way, um, he was promoted to <laughs> deputy <laughs> sheriff. So um, he he was a person who hurt a lot of people in his time. And Sabella was threatened by him. She was highly threatened by him. And she had also, um, during the first time that they, they, they arrested her and tried to bring her before a grand jury, she had been told that, that um, Dasso was going to arrange to have her beaten and that she would uh, have to hold her daughter and then be beat. And so she was really terrorized. So just to understand the timeline here, he comes up with this theory, and then her son James, does he kick her off the, the property and, and, and make her homeless? Well, he actually liquidated the farm. So he, he actually took the house and moved it. Um, it was a rented lot, and then he took everything, the horses, Pots and pans, whatever they had, he liquidated. And so when she came back, when she got it, she she was a, a arrested that uh, September on the adultery charges, September 1922. When she came back to her farm in December of 1922, it was an empty lot. He'd actually moved the house to his own property. Oh, oh, ugh. It was a shack, but. <laughs> It was a shack, but it was her shack. He, he sounds like a real gem of a son. I mean, he, he was the son of her husband during a prior marriage? No, that was her own flesh and blood. It was her own blood yeah, son? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Which is very often hard for people when I, I speak at groups very often. People will say that that's one of the hardest parts for them. And interestingly, one of his uh, grandchildren... Um, contacted me and, and said his uh, one of his sons was still alive and he looked forward to reading the book and I was like yeah I don't I don't think your dad should read this book um, because he might not know how his father behaved uh, during this time towards his own mother. Goodness, huh? Yeah. So yeah. okay. We're kind of bringing people down here. <laughs> <laughs> And her new husband is about the same age as her sons, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, his name was Pietro Crudele, or very often he went by, by Peter. And um, he, I was actually contacted by one of his great nieces, and she said that he had uh, left Bari um, very quickly after a fight with his parents. So he was alone in the U.S., and he, he did not have much. I mean, he was a farmhand on an impoverished farm. So things were not going very well for Peter either. Yeah, and he walked into the wrong situation, didn't he? <laughs> he sure did. He really did. Yeah. So they find the body. You've already talked about the state of the body at its discovery. Was there any other evidence that the police collected at the scene of the crime that would become important later on? No. No. Okay. Actually. Nope. Not, they didn't even have a weapon. They decided that he had been killed with a hammer, and then they just grabbed one from James's stash, because at that point, the farm had already been liquidated. Sabella Nitti, as you've mentioned, is is frightened, afraid of getting beaten, and also doesn't speak any English. How, how does the questioning go with, with this language barrier? Well, what's amazing about this language barrier is that uh, Sheriff Sasso is the son of immigrants from Genoa. And a few other people who try to uh, uh, speak to her, including Michael Romano, um, one of the, the assistant state's attorney, he's also the son of Italian immigrants. And they're speaking these dialects of Italian that do not line up with Sabella's dialect. And so I, I reached out when I was researching this book to a linguistic expert at Oxford University, and I, I gave them information about the years that, that the families had come from in these various regions in Italy. And I asked him how how meaningful were these this language barrier? Uh, and he said that when Sheriff Dasso tried to speak to Sabella in his dialect, it was akin to an English and Dutch speaker trying to communicate. And Sheriff Dasso, you know, this is not a guy who admits when he's wrong. And so he claims that he got a confession from Sapella. And he said that what she, her son Charlie, had been questioned, and she said, well, whatever Charlie says is true. It's not the confession. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So what does Charlie say? We don't know. We don't have record. Charlie is suspected early on as an accomplice. He, yeah, he actually, yeah, he is at the defendant's, uh, the defense uh, table all throughout the trial. And then before the case goes to the jury, um, the judge drops the charges against him. And what um, Dasso's theory was that Charlie passed the mallet to Peter and that Peter beat his father while he was sleeping underneath a wagon. And so this is a problem with the prosecution's case, right? They say to the jury that it is so hot the night Francesco maybe disappears that instead of sleeping in his bed, he went outside and slept underneath a wagon. And that while he was sleeping, Peter, Sabella, and Charlie went outside. Someone passed Peter a mallet and that he hit the body twice, once in the back, once in the head. Then Dasso claims that Peter took the body on his back, put it in the wagon, and drove to dispose of it. Here's all the problems. First of all, if it was so, it was 79 degrees tonight that that that, that Francesco went missing in July of 1922. You don't get so hot; you got to sleep outside when it's 79 degrees out. That's number one. Number two, if it was 79 degrees out, why was the body that was found? Why was it wearing a jacket? Three, the body that was found had no broken bones in the back. And we know now that the dent, uh, the, the cracking in the skull was most likely when the, the blood pooled as the body floated in water. Then we, that, these are, are several issues. Then we have to add on the fact that the coroner, uh, the physician, only did a cursory glance at the body. And this is in the book. There was a huge problem at the time where the coroner's physicians were completely overworked, and so they would just kind of look at a body and be like, yeah, he's dead. So we don't really know. And it was not closely investigated. But the problems get even worse, and that is that Peter and Sabella never put the body onto the wagon and hitched up the horse, and rode off to dispose of the body. And how we know this 
is because after Sabella was convicted, a farmhand came forward and said there was only one hitch, and he had it. So Sabella and Peter, there was no way they could have hitched up that horse and drove it to a catch basin or wherever because the farm had one hitch, and every night, Michele de Sant was permitted to use that hitch to drive a mile home. And Michele tried to communicate this. He was brought in as uh, eventually as a translator because they, they couldn't find a decent translator throughout the, the trial. And he was just completely stopped. And part of the reason he was stopped was because Sabella Nitti's attorney was just overwhelmed. He was battling a major mental illness. Uh, he ended up spending the vast majority of the 1930s in an insane asylum. This was a guy named Moran, right? Yeah, this is Eugene A. Moran. He was the son of a famous judge, and he had, unfortunately, some bad mental health issues. So at one point in the trial, he actually defends the prosecutor from the judge. And then, like, in one of the few instances in the book where you can actually laugh aloud is Eugene Moran becomes obsessed during the trial with why wasn't the corpse wearing underpants. <laughs> and, and, and he thinks, like, somebody took it, and there's evidence there, and I'm going to find out. You, know, you can also kind of uh, laugh a little bit whenever he thinks he's, like, speaking the Italiano, and it's just, like, so embarrassing, and you're like, oh, please stop, and eventually the judge tells him to stop. But, you know, he was unable to properly defend Sabella, and the prosecutors just preyed upon her. And they preyed upon her because they wanted a win. You know, at the time, there were not strong domestic violence laws protecting women in the city of Chicago, so very often when a case went before a coroner's jury where a woman shot or killed her boyfriend or husband, uh, or an ex for that matter, very often the coroner's jury would dismiss it because it was this was a battered woman and this was an act of self-defense. More often if it went on to the coroner or the grand jury, then the grand jury would dismiss it. So it was not particularly common that the case actually went to trial and then if it did go to trial, it, it, there was a, a, a strong standard of beautiful women being able to smile at the jury, seem helpless, and then get away with murder. So these prosecutors saw Sabalanitti, and despite the fact that the case was ridiculous and, you know, Dasa was ridiculous, uh, they pursued it because Sabalanitti was, in their opinion, haggard. She was, um, at the time, she was wearing um, clothes that do not resemble what a 1920s Chicago woman would wear, right? So she's wearing a skirt that cuts off at the knees, which is sensible for her because when you're working in the cornrow, you got to squat down and you don't want your skirt getting dirt on it. And she's wearing um, shoes that are actually just carpet scraps that have been pieced together, and she doesn't have American mannerisms, right? She doesn't make eye contact. She sits with her legs open. She grunts, you know, sniffles, things that, you know, we don't do. And so the, 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 she doesn't resemble what the jury have in their mind as, as a vulnerable woman. And in fact, it's the opposite. You know, at the time, there's a lot of bias in Chicago against Italian-Americans. And the, the, the prosecutors were able to play to that bias. And uh, at the time, Italian-Americans were the most violent ethnic group in the city. And um, very many people saw Italian-Americans as invaders uh, who were going to change the Chicago way of life. And things that didn't help, like marrying off your daughter when she's 15 to a man who's 35, things like that were were pretty upsetting to a city that was rushing towards modernity. And the, the, the disapproval of Italian-Americans came from the top down, right? So you had the, the chief of police in Chicago in an actual memo says he'd rather hire a monkey 
then you have Jane Addams of Hull House fame, right? This amazing social worker. Even in some of her writings that she says she knows a few good Italians. It's it's completely top-down, institutionalized, uh, appropriate bias. And uh, the, the prosecutors, they're able to capitalize on it. So very quickly, the jury convicts uh, Sabella Nitti and Peter Crudele, and they are sentenced to die. And 95 days separates them from the gallows. Now, if I could tell you a little bit about these gallows, I think it would behoove your listeners to hear about this. So Cook County, they meant to do the long drop technique. And basically, this was considered to be to stop suffering, right? That the, 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 the person would be weighed and they would measure out the rope. And the idea was the neck would break instantly and the person would be spared the suffering of strangulation. But to county, if, like, we can screw anything up, we will. And so the, the officials in charge of, of execution had switched rope types, and they switched to more of like a hemp, and it effectively served as a seatbelt that went around the neck, held the neck in place, and then the person strangled to death while the small bones in their neck were painfully breaking. And so this is what Sabella faced. We have on record every um, execution that ever took place in Cook County and at that time, they were up to 8, 9, 10, even 11 minutes before the person was pronounced dead. And this is what Sabella was facing. So she was terrorized. And um, twice she tried to kill herself. And uh, she was under watch because it was the state's job to execute her. And, uh, so this is what was going into the newspapers. And this is what was scandalizing the city. And, and fortunately, uh, a team of Italian-American attorneys decided to pick up the case on appeal and to fight. Would she have been the first woman executed in Illinois? In Chicago. Or Cook Chicago, County, okay. Me, in Cook County. Well, in Cook County is Chicago. Um, so there had been a woman in the 1890s who had been sentenced by a jury to hang, but the judge quickly converted it to life in prison. So what was different was Judge uh, David, uh, Judge Joseph David, the, the judge on this case, he upheld the verdict and really doubled down. And, in, 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 you know, initially in the beginning of the trial, he, he tried to remind the jury that there's doubt that this body is even uh, Francesco Nitti and we don't know. And then everything was just such a circus that he, he just kind of, descended into all of it and really strongly agreed with the prosecution and began saying things like, well, the evidence proved and this woman has to be brought to justice. So she was days away from facing the gallows. And what did the court of public opinion think about all of this? They were all over the map, but by and large, people were outraged because a lot of women's groups said, we don't like this. We don't write the laws. We don't enforce the laws. And we can't even serve on juries. So it's frightening for us to think that this woman is really going to the gallows because she's ugly. If she had a powder puff and the ability to bat her eyelashes, she probably wouldn't be going to the gallows. Other people said, this is, this is the new way of life. If women want the vote, if they want equal rights and they have to take equal punishment. But by and large, a lot of people were in an uproar. And I talk a little bit in the book about there had been a chilling effect uh, nationwide on ex state executions against white women. And that was primarily due to, to Mary Surratt. She planned the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and she was, she was hung um, very promptly after the trial. And in hindsight, some people questioned whether that had been appropriate. Um, a new evidence, so um, and, and there's a great book by Kate Clifford Lawson called The Assassin's Accomplice uh, that says, no, she was, she was really a ringleader. 
But regardless, there had been a chilling effect about the state's right to execute a white woman. And, um, you know, Isabella wasn't, she wasn't exactly white to them, but at the same time, there was a chilling effect. Not only was she facing the gallows, but her new husband was too, right? Yeah, yeah, he sure was. Um, They would have been numbers 88 and number 90 uh, in, in the Cook County record books for executions. So at this point, things are looking pretty grim for her until an attorney steps in for her, a woman named Helen Cerise. Yeah, so um, Helen Cerise is in her early 20s, and she's from my hometown of Oak Park, and she is the daughter of Sicilian immigrants. And their real name is Shirazi, but they go by Cerise because they think it sounds French, and maybe people will just think they're French. And she's this um, brilliant young woman, attorney who has everything going against her in terms of finding a legal job. She is a female, which this is a time when women can't even serve on juries. It's polite dinner conversation to tell her to to go get married instead. She's female, she's Italian, and she's beautiful. So kind of at opposite Sabella's problem in that way, where people look at uh, Helen and they just inquire you, wasting your life in a courtroom, right? So she um, is excluded from the, 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 the legal community, as are many other Italian-Americans. And she decides um, with a team of five other attorneys, uh, the team of six, as I refer to them, they decide to pick up the case on appeal. And they... They really have to run like hell. They just have mere days to get in affidavits, such as the one I discussed earlier from McKelly DeSant, who had the hitch the night that Francesco Nitti went missing. So they, they had to run like hell to get, to get this down to the Illinois Supreme Court. And it was really a risk because um, if the Supreme Court did not agree to hear the case, then Sabella would be executed. It was also a risk because they could agree to read the case, but then find in, in favor with the lower court. So they found out really just a few weeks before the execution that the Supreme Court, Illinois Supreme Court was going to read the case. And that was great news um, because Sabalo was not going to the gallows. Uh, the bad news was they weren't going to read the case until the early winter of 1924. But Helen saw this as an opportunity to give her client a makeover and to make Sabella presentable in the event that they had the opportunity at a second trial. I mean, this and doesn't so even sound did, real. It's so weird. Right. I know. It, it's, it, you know and what's so amazing about Helen um, Cerise is that she didn't hide any of this, right? She kind of thumbed her nose at the press by being like, well, look, we judge women on their looks, so I'm going to just play that game, and then I'm going to win it. <laughs> she did. I mean, she she was great. And so um, she had some help from uh, one of the attorneys, Nuncio Benelli, his wife, Margaret, um, was helpful to her. And so over the, the winter into 1924, we have Sabella learning English. She's um, really a smart woman because she doesn't even know how to read or write. And that makes learning a new language highly difficult, but she does. And she goes along with the makeover. She'd always kind of been keenly aware that she wasn't in fashion and she would try to tuck her hair up to make it look like a bob. So they, they actually bobbed her hair and gave it some color. And then most importantly, they fed her. She was really emaciated and hard looking. And, and, and that was a problem. But come spring of 1924, she she looks great. And she's really definitely a nightmare for the prosecution because she looks now like someone's mom. You know, she looks like she should be at the ladies' flower show, not somebody who should be at a murder trial. And so what's so fascinating about this, though, is that the prosecution's still not giving up. And particularly because Sabella is not then in jail with Belva and Beulah, the women who inspired Belma Kelly and Roxy Hart. And pretty much what happens in the movie is what happens in real life. 
because you couldn't make this up either. And that is the, the Roxy Hart character who's Bueller and Nan. You know, she, she has her boyfriend over to her apartment while her husband's at work. And this is in the middle of the week. And they drink a gallon of wine together. And then they do what people who drink a gallon of wine do, which is they get in a rip-roaring fight. And she shoots him and makes the mistake of saying to the, the state's attorney, can we uh, make it look like an accident? But she fakes a pregnancy just like in the movie, and um, she is acquitted by the jury and gone within a day, within a day of her trial. And then you have uh, Balva Gartner, who inspired Valma Kelly, and she's a divorced socialite who shoots her married boyfriend in his car and then goes up inside her apartment and really just seems like surprised when the police come knocking on her door. Like, can't they just clean this up for her? And she's really horrendous. And the chapters on her, um, particularly the chapters plumbing in the police station, are a, a pretty satisfying read because she actually sits two seats down from the widow during the coroner's hearing and then mocks the poor widow. So you're not really sad when she's uh, remanded to a grand jury. <laughs> but just like in the movie, she claims she doesn't remember anything, and she's also acquitted. So at this point in time, now the, the prosecutors really don't want to let Sabella Nitty go. They are tired of going to the press and saying, yes, this woman shot a man, but we couldn't get her. So they're doubling down. Uh, the great news is the team of six are extremely sharp. And there's also something that comes in that in, in, in May of 1924 to distract the prosecution. And that is the Leopold and Loeb murder of Bobby Franks. And that was one of the most famous trials in Chicago history. In May of 1924, Leopold and Loeb were two University of Chicago students two of the wealthiest young men um, in the city. Well, their fathers were wealthy. And they claimed they wanted to kill a boy for the thrill of it. And they claimed it was it was like a science experiment to see what it was like. Uh, but they were truly, truly sadistic. And uh, there was a cover-up that hid from the public their past crimes and their budding tendencies as serial killers, which is really fascinating. But it was very helpful to spell Nitty because the prosecutors, they were focusing everything on that trial. Leopold and Loeb were being represented by the famed Clarence Darrow, and they needed pretty much all hands on deck. So the team of six were able to get Sabella and Peter. They were able to get bailed out, basically, in June of 1924. And they went their separate ways. And then in December of 1924, the the state had to drop the the charges against Sabella and Peter because they had nothing. These other two women who the Chicago musical characters are based on, just to get this straight, they're they're being tried for murder at the same time Sabella and Nydia. Yes, it is all within... Yeah, this all, it is all happening at once, right? So Sabella's actually going to court, lined up, Belva, Beulah, Sabella. And then the day of Belva's trial is the same day that, um, at that point, Leopold and Loeb have already been arrested, and a taxi driver named Charles Ream goes to the, the, the criminal courts building and in front of a slew of reporters, he uh, identifies Leopold and Loeb as the two men who abducted him the previous autumn, sedated him with ether, and castrated him. And if any of my listeners want to go back and review that story, that was the second episode I ever did. I interviewed Simon Batts about his book. Yes, yeah, yeah. And you, that's, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's, there's only been two books ever written on Leopold and Loeb and Simon Batts and then Hal Higdon. And, and, um, they both make note, but they don't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, they make note that the prosecutors 
they Robert Crow agreed with Clarence Darrow to not reference these cases, including Charles Ream. Even and even though Charles Ream went public, and even though there was later a civil suit against Leopold and Loeb that their parents settled out of court, um, everybody always kind of remembers these two almost kind of like deliciously, like oh they they killed for the thrill of it, but. I think they're, Leopold and Loeb, along with Balvin Bula, are really important to just use as a contrast to Sabella. Because here she was, the most innocent one, and she was the most feared. And she was the one that was so easy for the prosecutors to convict on no evidence because people just assumed a woman like that was evil. And I think it's really fascinating that we assume to this day that evil has an appearance. Yeah, and it's so hard to believe that the difference between life and death for her is essentially some makeup, new clothes, and a and a bit of extra weight. It it really was, and that and and, and she had a team of six Italian American attorneys who just knew this was a nonsense case. They had themselves all experienced discrimination. Um, they later founded the, the Justinian Society for Italian-American Attorneys. And um, part of that was because they were not accepted in the legal community. And so I have these records from, from the different bar association newsletters where one of the team of six members would be reta- running for a magistrate or a judge position. And the review would say this person is well-qualified and of good character but not recommended. And you knew it was because this last name ended with a vowel. So they knew what this discrimination was like, and um, it really enabled them to question the system that was was really railroading Sabella. I have to ask you, what is your theory on what happened to Frank Nitty? Following your lead, your thought that he might not have been murdered... What do you think became of him? Well, it's it's interesting. I um, I I I just think it's a really strong possibility he just walked away. Sabella, Nitty, and her husband they were not a typical couple, and that Sabella was was what was called a white widow, and she lived for more than a decade alone in Italy without contact with her husband. And I, I always thought that, that was interesting because my own great grandmother was a white widow in in Italy, and my great grandfather Giuseppe came to Chicago, and then um, sent back for her, and that was you know a very difficult existence because you know your husband isn't there to help you out. Sabella uh, and Francesco didn't read or write, so there was no communication, and she would go years without seeing him. So this isn't a couple that was as attached to each other. You know, this marriage was about survival, it was about family unit, but it wasn't about love. And I think that at the time, you you look at how Social Security cards didn't exist and driver's license, as long as you could, you know, get some credit if you needed it, that's all you needed. And um, you could just really show up anywhere and you were who you said you were. And I... I know that the oldest son, James, had gone up to Michigan and lived under an assumed name. And I think there's a possibility that Francesco did that. I've also read a legal article in which uh, a legal scholar uh, suspected uh, Michael, that Michael had come back. He was, Michael was, you know, he was a, he was a violent guy and he had a very hot temper. And uh, I say that not uh, just because of, of what we've seen with this fight with his father, but just some other documented sources that came up in the trial. Um, that he, I mean, he got in trouble for, for getting into a fight with a police officer instead of taking a, a speeding ticket. So he was a really hot-headed guy. And uh, some of uh, Sabella's grandchildren um, contacted me after the book came out and, and told me some stories that confirmed that they, they did not cross their, their uncle Michael. So I think that's a possibility, too. But I think there is no possibility that Sabella Nitti killed her husband. I don't think there's any possibility that her and Peter were having an affair prior to 
them getting married, which I think was out of out of desperation for their very poor circumstances. But that's a, a little harder to prove, right? N- no one really knows. Nobody really knows except, I mean, we're in God's name, which they've had this affair. They lived in a one, one-room shack that had a loft for sleeping. Oh, that's true. You know, you look at how the, the, the farm was situated, and it would have been really difficult. This They had, Pietro lived there, the two little girls, Francesco, a farmhand named Jenny, Sibella, and then, you know, sometimes Charlie came in and out. Um, so this was a really crowded family that was always together. So it, it just didn't seem right. And Sibella denied it. And, and throughout her testimony, everything I checked rang true. So I have to give her the benefit of the doubt. Another thing that strikes me as being a little fishy off the top of my head is that someone, after crawling under a wagon to kill him would have the room while underneath there to swing the the mallet effectively in such close quarters. You know what I mean? I I don't know. It was bizarre. And then at one point, you know, throughout the trial, where they initially said that the body had been dumped into like a a, a water uh, reservoir and then maybe floated into through the pipe that connects the sewer to the reservoir. And Basil was like always kind of playing with these two theories and never really fully committing um, until he kind of got backed into a corner regarding the, the, the water reservoir. It was just such an outlandish theory. And I actually looked up how sewers, and catch basins uh, were engineered in, in 1920s Chicago and looked at the blueprint. It was a really good day. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, excuse me for my simpleness here, but but what would make him come with such a specific scenario that that he thought Nitty was killed under a wagon? I mean, was there some piece of evidence, like a witness, to, to lead him to this exact theory? I mean, why a wagon? You know what? I don't know. I, I mean, other than that, he was just, he kind of had his, his Sherlock Holmes self-identity going on where he believed that he could deduce evidence. And it may have been when he he rode up one day in the car as he approached the farm and he saw how things were situated, he decided at that point that's how it went. But nobody ever admitted to this. Nobody ever confirmed it. There were never any witnesses. It was just a story. It was a story and he was sticking to it. So one final question. What happens to Sabella Nitti once she's freed? So I'm pleased to report she has a happy ending. Um, she um, stayed in Chicago, surprisingly, for about a decade um, and, and raised her two daughters. And then um, she remarried uh, a brave man and um, retired to California. And Charlie also went out to California, as did one of her daughters. Another, the older one stayed in Chicago. And James and Michael had to go to prison for a while for some robbery business. But then James went up to Michigan, and Michael, I believe, also went out to California. So I, I was able to meet one of Sabella's granddaughters, and um, she said that the man that Sabella remarried, they considered their grandfather and that he was a very kind man. So that made me happy to hear. So I like to think that she found some peace out in the California sun. Is there any evidence that she ever reconciled with her, her son, James? I don't know. I know that... I know that the, the granddaughter I, t- I spoke with was very fond of her uncle James, very fond, and that he would come to visit. She also went out to California regularly to see Sabella. She said the family didn't talk about it and they did not know anything about it until um, really the 1980s. And at that point, they tried to do some research, and they really weren't able to figure it out. And they 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 assumed at that point that perhaps she did kill him. Not as Dasso suggested, but perhaps it did happen. And, and she, she told me that the book really exonerated um, her grandmother 
for her. And that made me really happy that her legacy within her family is that she was a, a hardworking, cheerful woman. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My guest again has been Dr. Emily LeBeau Lucchese. Her book, Ugly Prey, An Innocent Woman and the Death Sentence That Scandalized Jazz Age Chicago, is available through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and your favorite independent bookstores. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.